top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. Fifteen years ago... On Christmas Eve, his family became his victims. What have you done? Now, all roads and airports are officially closed. This one is not going to let up. A group of college friends. That sucks. Everyone should be home for Christmas are about to discover... Lauren, we're opening up presents. Why don't you open the present we got you? Their house... I got it. ...is his home. All is calm. All is bright. Who is in my house tonight? Don't you have lots of toys to deliver to good little boys and girls? You really shouldn't provoke somebody like that. And on December 25th... You're definitely getting punked. All he wants for Christmas is Megan in her room. Is a new family he can treat like his very own. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 366 of the Really Awful Movies podcast. Black Christmas from 2006. Uh, I must be a glutton for punishment around the holidays, but... uh, yeah, I decided to finally give this one a go after remarking and recalling and reminiscing about just how uh, excellent and uh, iconic the opening sequence is for the Bob Clark 1974 Black Christmas. I think it really sets the tone. It has this herky-jerky kind of style that would uh, later become uh, par for the course and uh, commonplace in the horror genre and I think uh, borrowed, as John Carpenter admits, for the uh, original Halloween. But uh, this is not that. So frequently and oft times when these uh, remake situations come about, you get, um, I guess, uh, lamenting the fact that no chances are taken, no artistic risks are made, and that what you're left with is some kind of cobbled-together rehash. In the case of the Psycho uh, Van Zandt reboot, actually shot-for-shot, note-for-note, scene-for-scene, line-by-line with uh, Vince Vaughn, and I can't even recall who else was in it, but a a totally pointless uh, and completely alienating piece of silliness that uh, really does a disservice 
surface to uh, Alfred Hitchcock and uh, the original, which really, when you come to th come to think of it, has put uh, horror on the map as we know it. It's really the prototype around which modern horrors are uh, frequently based, at least with some of the uh, some of the little uh, touches that uh, Hitch put in there. Whether it was the mise en scène with the uh, taxidermy or just the house on the hill, uh, something that uh, obviously came before that with uh, other films of this of that ilk in the 50s and 60s but never put in the context of what would ultimately be a horror and and certainly a lot of elements of the surveillance aspect of things and, and the creepy guy who runs the motel i mean there's just so many you know, things about that the leering lecherous uh, pervert who spies on people and uh, even some of the later I guess uh, cross-dressing and the gender-bending uh, elements that a film such as the sleepaway camp uh, later heavily borrowed from it just seems like another one of these pointless exercises in Black Christmas it's another case of why mess with success and they recently even did another one that I think came out in 2020 and I'm just wondering really really why they would bother although when you want to give credit for credit where it's due uh, in in the case of uh, the 2006 black christmas they almost rob zombified uh, this film and by giving the antagonist billy uh, infamously ambiguously depicted in the first film as uh, the sort of creeper lurking in the attic they give him this uh, quite labored and quite labor intensive and quite involved and quite quite protracted uh, backstory that i don't think does it many it doesn't do it any it doesn't serve the story particularly well but you got to have at least a little bit of credit there because there's something that uh, they really built up upon and i think it, it was a total swing and a miss but when it comes to the kind of uh, laziness that uh, occurred with the likes of Halloween Kills, where you had Michael emerging from a, from a burning building and a bunch of uh, firefighters going after him like uh, like old boy, uh, one one in, one after another, and getting uh, pickaxed. It was almost like a, a cheap homage to My Bloody Valentine or something. But when you have something that's that unbelievably lazy and cobbled together with no effort, no creativity, you have to laud Black Christmas in some respect for the few things that they did get right. And a few things they did get right. There's uh, they they very um, adroitly used I guess uh, Dutch camera angles and tried to uh, bring in Bob Clark's sense of uh, what Germans call unheimlich, uh, like the. Uh, kind of sense of unease and creepiness that they get when the when the camera follows a character around and there's particularly good scenes where characters are poking around in the attic and you could say yes this is to their detriment why do horror characters always do stupid things but in this case i think it's uh, somewhat justified um, there's also some really really well lit scenes and making a really good use of christmas lights and i think overall the cinematography i think uh, serves it very well here. I'm thinking uh, a movie that also did this uh, very well, not with Christmas lights, but with uh, natural lighting uh, to uh, give generate a sense of unease was the Halloween haunted house movie called uh, Haunt, which again uses the funhouse uh, lights to really bring things to light. And uh, speaking of Rob Zombie, it's something he did with some of his more better received films like House of a Thousand Corpses and, and the like. But uh, getting back to Black Christmas, they you know, have a similar setup and uh, similarly uh, they start to receive the, the girls in this house. They have a den mother and it's a character that's actually uh, Andrea Martin who's uh, of course the uh, star and actually a college co-ed at the time of the first one and now she has become the uh, sorority house mom. 
and uh, the 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 way the director handled this versus the Bob Clark scene, it's it, it, scene for scene, it, it really lets it's such a letdown in 2006 because in the original one you had such a sense of agency and ballsiness and and sense of you know, putting up your dukes and uh, growing a, a spine and the way they handled the uh, the. the um, uh, lecherous, uh, heavy breathing caller was a thing of beauty. I thought they all gather around the phone, and uh, one of them actually castigates the caller for being a pervert or something of that effect. It's been a while since I've actually seen all of uh, Black Christmas, but they all chime in and they get a kick out of uh, turning uh, the tables on the creeper. And is this a very, very charming scene? Uh, also, the fact that there is just there's a sense of closeness, and, and I don't mean uh, metaphorically, but also physically, between all the characters gathering around in a small, confined space that I think is a bit lost in 2006 by having this sprawling giant home. The, the homes are similar, yes, and they do make uh, some good uses of it in uh, the 2006 version, but it doesn't have that uh, cloistered uh, threshold, uh, us versus the outside uh, dynamic, and then turning that inside out when you have uh, someone who's actually lurking in, in the shadows. Actually, right off the bat, the Black Christmas 2006 actually uh, does a callback to the most uh, iconic kill from uh, Black Christmas 74, which is, of course, uh, Lynn Griffin getting asphyxiated, and then, of course, what happens with the cat thereafter, which is really shocking and I think still holds up and is expertly crafted to build suspense uh, in a way that you've already been introduced to the character, and then when it happens to them, you actually have an emotional investment uh, in, in the scene. By contrast, they flip that on its ear, and the opening scene, pre-credit roll, has the bag scene and then amplified, as is often the case for modern horrors, to ratchet up the gore because I guess that puts a bums in seats or that's a maybe a call to the cheap seats, uh, stabs the victim in the head. Now, fine, there's not a problem updating gore if you thought that the original lacked it and there was some sort of uh, something that could be improved upon by uh, ratcheting it up. This was uh, demonstrably and overtly not the case with 1978's Halloween because you didn't need it is ultimately an incredibly suspenseful film minus all the gore and what you get here is uh, 2006 they really went for the gusto when it came to the backstory and just the utter sleaziness of it all and really trying to make something exploitative however if you're gonna go all the way at least wallow in it and just embrace it and take the kind of the uh, the iconography and cinematography from the exploitation films of the 70s and really really enrapture yourself if the, this is a way to put it in in total and utter filth and you could see how terrifier did that in a way that both updated the exploitation films from the 70s but also put a new spin on it by introducing uh, the the horror world to a new character an antagonist that who should uh, by rights, uh, join the upper pantheon, pantheon of uh, all-time greats, I think, in Art the Clown. I think it was sensationally depicted there. But here, the sleaziness and the incestuous backstory and the just grim way that they treated uh, the uh, upbringing of Billy, that's something that in previous films would have been, uh, would have taken maybe two to three minutes as some sort of lame prologue and then fast forward ahead to uh, obviously present day and then do what it is you have to do. And that's fine. I mean, I have no problem with generating a story around an antagonist, especially one in whom there's so much uh, inherent ambiguity. So there's not a problem doing that. However, 
tonally there is a problem if you're not going to uh, uh, infuse your production with these kind of elements to make it a cohesive whole. And I'm thinking right off the bat, which gives this this very uh, uneven feel, is when uh, Billy is uh, confined to an asylum and uh, breaks free. Now, this is fine if you were to do it in a very uh, cold, clinical, sterile way and actually uh, give it a, a heaping dose of realism. The, this kind of setup is something that you have to invest a lot of care and deliberation into getting just right, or else you run the risk of having it turn into this some some uh, asinine thunder and lightning uh, hammer horror type of uh, cornball confluence of uh, uh, outdoor weather systems with something happening inside, you know, like, and the, uh, the way that the jail guard is depicted and how you have the Santa walking around in the asylum, it's corny as hell and very much at odds with the sleaze that uh, Black Christmas tries to engage in. And if you want a really good example of Christmas sleaze, you can go to Christmas Evil, which is John Waters' favorite slasher, but then there's also All Through the House, which is a really grotesque, uh, low-budget, uh, Chris Kringle-type slasher film that really wallows in squalor. Say that five times fast, right? And actually involves like a severed penis and uh, some incredibly gory stuff. And there, there's no redemption for that film. It's just all sleaze, all grossness. And you have the cameras linger on naked bodies. It has all the hallmarks of the 80s that we came to know and love. So when you have uh, a, an asylum scene in Black Christmas and you have Billy uh, reprising the uh, eyeball peep through the, the passage where they pass the, uh, the tray in uh, maximum security facilities of, of this ilk, which is something actually reprised repeatedly through. So when you have one, uh, a couple instances in the Bob Clark film with the eye and naturally appearing in in the walls of this, uh, I guess, uh, dilapidated mansion that's uh, converted into a frat house, then that is actually impactful when it's a leering, kind of a very realistic, and, and given all the more resonance because of the fact that you know that he's in the home and the characters are oblivious to it. Now, when you have this just, uh, I guess, uh, touched upon right off the bat, and then you have it uh, repeated later on in a particularly asinine and ridiculous scene involving floor tiles in a bathroom and the eyeball coming out, it just it's something that could have been done really, really well had it been maybe a part of a, a, a shower tile that just had a slit in it, but you, you could basically see the guy's entire head right through the tile, and I'm surprised. Well, I mean, the character was uh, drunk at the time, so it's possible she wouldn't have seen this, but just logistically of how to uh, <laughs> how to replace a tile in a bathroom and have someone leer up through it is was insane. But uh, getting back to the asylum, it had more of a cellar-dweller feel, and the thunder and lightning and that kind of cornball monster movie type feel. And if the rest of your movie is going to be exploitation fodder and going to be going for the balls and going for the gusto and really ratcheting up that kind of just pure, unadulterated sleaze, then you got to make the whole movie sleazy. You can't be tonally off and by God, like you go for the horror first. I've said this on countless occasions and concern trolling the horror community here, but horror first, 
black comedy second. That's the way you're supposed to go. And uh, there was some attempts uh, in the beginning that uh, it didn't quite land when it comes to the jokes. That there's a, a piece of chicken and the character says, tastes like chicken. Uh, I believe it's the jail guard. And he says, probably because it is chicken. It's just this, I think that could have worked had the uh, asylum been someplace that was really austere and really dark and really clinical and really creepy. There, there's numerous films that maybe a hellhole uh, with the, with Mary Warnoff that uh, dealt with this quite expertly. But there's lots of films that have turned the hospital mental hospital setting into something uh, really uh, impactful. I think uh, speaking of Rob Zombie, we alluded to before his uh, Halloween film and uh, Retread really did not deftly handle the um, the hell the asylum setting and he had this awful Loomis that he had introduced and these ridiculous orderlies that were so over the top and so Rob Zombified. But uh, when you think about this movie, as I said, is Rob Zombified because even though uh, the the rocker wasn't involved, you have everyone at the beginning just t- turned into the, all the backstory characters are turned into just uh, white trash and just trailer trash, and there's uh, just no let up. And again, I have no uh, issue particularly with how uh, w- with having a character have an incestuous backstory or the being the product of uh, home abuse or that kind of thing because it adds a little bit of uh, gravitas to the proceedings if you do it expertly. But they just didn't even know how to handle this. They they could have had uh, the mother uh, maybe salaciously like um, brush uh, Billy's hand in a way that would lend itself to a, like a creepier image and without having to show, I mean, this uh, back um, shot of this uh, straddling on this on, on the um, rocking chair. Of course, the rocking chair being a callback to the 1974 film and really why do you keep having to have these callbacks like it doesn't matter if you don't have a rocking chair in your film it doesn't matter if you don't trot out the uh, i guess the uh, christmas sculpture the the um, unicorn sculpture because it's used in the beginning and then we see yes this is how the unicorn sculpture came to be it's wholly irrelevant to the character you don't need a unicorn sculpture you don't need the rocking chair you can have an asphyxiation if you want you don't necessarily need it if you want the setup you you can just deal with that and uh, this was the time of uh, flip phones but it still follows the same template of the heavy breather don't answer the phone uh, thing or when a stranger calls or uh, I don't know murder by phone really if you want to take a tangential look at it but it has those hallmarks and it has uh, that aspect and I think it was pretty well dealt with the fact that uh, landlines are uh, not uh, as much of a a feature as they once were so they, they tried to do that and again the movie suffers from a surfeit of characters as well with one introducing a bunch of exposition and backstory. I forget the, the guy's name. is the boyfriend and there's this whole revenge porn subtext that really rings hollow as well because it, it just... I don't know. It just didn't. It didn't. It wasn't quite handled in the way that uh, that kind of uh, maneuver could have been done. I mean, uh, kudos for them for introducing it to to uh, uh, introducing it to us because it certainly is at odds thematically with anything you'd associate with. Uh, fun and good tidings of the holidays. So it's just something that could have been done a little bit better. This guy character and the backstory between him and his uh, infidelity rings hollow, brought nothing to the proceedings. I didn't think Andrea Martin um, was particularly well cast because she's obviously known for uh, being a wonderful comedic actress uh, through obviously her work from SCTV. And uh, she didn't really have the chance to showcase those chops in this film. So the question comes up then, you know, 
or question begged. Uh, why cast a comedic actress in a role in which there's no comedy? One, one of the many you know, complaints I have about this movie. But uh, what's frustrating on many accounts is the, the fact that they, there are snippets of really, really well done scenes in this, and yet there's uh, moments of just uh, howlingly bad uh, aspects to it that it just it doesn't jive all the way through. So the good bits, they actually have a bit of a nod to Giallo when you, you have a close-up shot of this one of the um, sorority women's uh, lips when she's smoking a cigarette and I think her heels as well. It was kind of a leering camera moment that would not have been out of place in one of... Uh, maybe uh, Umberto Lenzi's uh, early giallo efforts, like uh, Orgasmo or something. It just had, like, the the lips shot, it seemed a little out of place, but I kind of appreciated it in some respects. There, there's also a couple decent scares, I gotta say, and uh, they did go for the gusto with the gore, although I think uh, safely I can speak for a lot of people when I say that I'm a bit tired of eyeball gouging and uh, eating eyeballs, and if it's not going to be done in a way that generates, um, I guess, pre-horror, if you want to call it that, that sort of lays the foundation, sets the table, and then offers payoff, then it's just... Uh, eyeball for the sake of eyeball doesn't really uh, come together if there's no emotional investment. Um, there's also some, I think, day for night continuity issues here. As I said, lots of the cinematography was great, but some of the scenes you could really tell were at odds with what was happening outside. So there'd be something that looked like it's filmed in the daylight, then the characters, it would cut to a, a, a winter's night. And it's a particular bugbear of mine, it, it, probably because uh, on account of me being Canadian, but um, I find a lot of horror films and films in general, they never get snow right, and it's infuriating. This stuff looked like popcorn, it looked like dandruff. You know, I'm not saying uh, uh, Toronto is like uh, Siberia or anything, but we're, we get our fair share of dumping of snow, and I can tell you what real snow looks like. This was not it, and you're, if you're going to do a wintry movie, go somewhere where they have winter. It's not that hard to have a cheap production somewhere, film it in Colorado, go up to Michigan, go up to upstate New York, film it somewhere. It's not that difficult to really get this right. Uh, the original Black Christmas was filmed up the street from me uh, in a kind of a Tony area near Casaloma, which is a weird sprawling mansion that uh, this eccentric millionaire from 150 years ago built and it's a quite a beautiful area i was really hoping to be able to find the photo i took of it because i actually went to uh, buy a bike I biked over there it's about a 10 15 minute bike ride north of me and i went to get some images there and i can't recall if i went during the winter uh, as well but i can't for the life of me find this image i might have to go up there and take a trek one of these days when it's particularly picturesque and particularly wintry i think for foreign viewers uh, and i and count myself among those uh, the, the, it's the the whole deal with this sorority business is something that can be a little bit missed and I guess what, what, why they needed to have this was to have a bunch of uh, college co-eds confined to one space and that was really why they did it. It didn't really matter, they could have had a dorm and uh, done a little spin on it where they could have had been snowed in and been unable to uh, move and then they could have had someone uh, you know, from inside the dorm working their, uh, their you know, uh, murderous uh, rampages and had that going on. But I find sororities very, very bizarre, but this movie did send me down a rabbit hole of actually questioning why anyone would join them and actually watched a couple videos. And this is such a huge phenomenon down in the States. What goes on behind the scenes, I guess, um, 
potential new members is one of the jargon in it. It's like PNM, and you have this, what they call, uh, this, I think I get this right, there's a little and a big, so they have this strange sort of a pseudo mentor relationship between a like I say a freshman or undergrad underclassmen underclass woman who would be about 17 18 years old and someone who's maybe in their final year I guess a sophomore or whatever they call it in the states fourth year uh, their final year of university and uh, I'm not sure to what extent anyone could be mentored who's maybe three years older than you and has been through university particularly it's it's not anything I, I wouldn't find it particularly uh, um, edifying unless it was maybe a grad student and they could give you some uh, tips on how to succeed but just someone who's a couple of years older maybe I'm wrong I don't know and I find jockeying for favor and the, the whole uh, rushing which is uh, the parlance for actually trying to join one of these sororities or fraternities I find kind of baffling so they have a, a standard you know, ledger of questions that they ask and then it doesn't even matter what they ask as these legacy people or the people they get in it doesn't matter what you look like but other people will just there's a certain sameness to it there's like a skinny you know blonde stereotype but i just it it, it beggars belief really that such a thing would exist first off that you would uh, other than maybe from com for camaraderie but you can get camaraderie with a, a going anywhere to any campus event and just meeting up and meeting up with people but the whole concept of like a den mother which is uh, the, the role of Andrea Martin in this film is somewhat odd because what you have is ostensibly adults and they're living in student accommodation and yet they have this person who looks after them and does their I guess does their laundry and all the, 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 this is something that uh, they picked up on with the uh, infamous uh, antagonist Mrs. Slater in the house on sorority row which is a, an excellent excellent uh, sorority type uh, horror film uh, the less that's said about sorority house massacre and its sequels probably the better but it's another one of these weird things that if you're ostensibly an adult why would you need to be taken care of by someone in their 40s and 50s who's this sort of uh, de facto mother figure i mean good god like cook yourself you can fend for yourself be an adult grow up you know, this whole scheme about going in and having these uh, fellow uh, women whose shoulders you can cry on to uh, hundreds of them with the phi beta kappa rama gamma uh, whatever running the gamut of the alpha gammas it, it just i don't it just it's completely uh, bewildering to me but uh, it's it's one of those things that uh, we have it in canada too because as the there's a hoary old saying that says you know when the, or when an elephant sneezes the mouse gets a cold or something so we're inextricably linked across the border between our american cousins but but the, the Greek phenomenon never really took off in Canada uh, to the same extent, although my alma mater, University of Toronto, has had some issues with it. And I, I think I recall as an undergrad you know, walking through campus and seeing this house with the uh, whatever, Delta, Epsilon, Theta, whatever bullshit, and there was a bunch of dudes just sitting there on the porch and just drinking beer, and I was going to class trying to study, and I just didn't really understand the, how someone could be sitting around at noon in the sun just... Yeah, like getting drunk it just uh, was totally lost on me but uh, as a setting for a horror it's it's become uh, the sorority has become uh, exploited uh, by various filmmakers to varying degrees of success there are certain tropes and certain stereotypes that come with it uh, i.e. a bunch of rich bitches who uh, almost there's an undercurrent of uh, 
them uh, getting their comeuppance and it could be a little bit of class envy seeping into these things as there's always always a, a strong moral tone uh, to a horror horror movies uh, some of the women in this movie are better than others there's Lacey Chabert from Party of Five and uh, um, other things and then another them really rings true particularly although they did uh, take a little bit of time to invest in them a little bit but uh, apart from just drinking copiously and uh, and uh, puking. There's not really much to them, and they, they have some sort of tribute that they're paying. It's it's almost like uh, paying off the gods, uh, where they uh, tri hang a, I think they give a gift or hang a stocking for Billy in a tribute to the murders that happened uh, previously as a way that he doesn't, uh, I guess, uh, torment them again, which do doesn't ring true to me. Doesn't it? Doesn't it's not something that would happen. Nothing that has any sort of verisimilitude to it doesn't work for me at all. But again, I'm trying to be fair with this movie. It's not nearly as bad as some people have said. There is a couple of impactful scenes. The, the, the backstory, again, doesn't bother me so, so much. Uh, I mean, given it's not like they, they created something out of whole cloth, even if it's uh, not particularly great, you got to give them some credit for at least taking uh, orthogonal uh, paths and just uh, moving uh, sideways and taking you know, liberties, at least uh, with some respect. Like, I always uh, respect, go big or go home. And if you're going to fail, which I think this one does, fail spectacularly. And if you're going to fail in a middling kind of way, then do it the Halloween 18 way or Halloween kills. And you just introduce a bunch of characters and then have them killed off with no emotional investment and just fail on that sense. So uh, Black Christmas 2006. Hmm. Yeah. There's a few, few things that are just by the sheer chutzpah for putting them in. You got to almost add a star, uh, but I would hate to be um, introduced to uh, the series and the franchise, if you want to even call it that. There's three installments, but I would hate to be to be exposed to this one and then going back to see the original. And uh, again, uh, it's, it's a common gripe and grousing by people that, oh, that is before my time. People often say that about music that they can't get into, but everything's before your time for the most part. I mean, uh, it, unless you, you are at like 50 and 60 years old and you actually watched uh, the golden era of slashers in in the 80s and for most of us that would not necessarily have been the case uh, you can't have anything you can't necessarily I mean how should I put this uh, there, there comes a sense of nostalgia that uh, you always remember your first and uh, that this can cloud uh, your judgment but uh, when I look back at certain um, iconic uh, films from the 70s there are ones that really really stand out and it doesn't matter that I would not have necessarily been born that you know, I look back to these things and realize that the 70s was a different beast. There's the era of Taxi Driver, the era of Jaws, it's the era of all these different kinds of movies, the introduction of the blockbuster, and then these downbeat, very, very depressing type movies. And uh, when you have Black Christmas, it really, uh, it really tapped into some sort of uh, cultural moment and really put uh, slashers on the map, or at least ones that were tied into a particular holiday. Uh, subsequently copied sort of ad nauseum with the likes of April Fools and uh, the likes of uh, My Bloody Valentine and Hospital Massacre, which is uh, actually uh, based on uh, Valentine's Day and just, uh, uh, you know, Mother's Day. And just uh, around this time, it seems to be uh, particularly uh, fulsome when it comes to these types of films, because there's just a spate of of uh, Christmas horrors from Santa Slay to Silent Night, Deadly Night, Silent Night, Bloody Night, and uh, Better Watch Out, and there's a series called Elves, which I had recommended to me, but uh, which I haven't checked out. 
And of course, all through the night, the aforementioned. Well, there's even ones that touch on it from uh, adjacent uh, genres. So you got your Invasion USA, Jaws the Revenge is a Christmas movie. What the hell, right? Jaws the Revenge. It should segue probably into what we've learned as we're getting to that point in the show. So I didn't learn overly much here, but. Like, can we put a moratorium already on uh, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker in, in horror films or otherwise or anything? It is so overused. Uh, in addition, well, particularly in horror, but with the um, Carol of the Bells, too, like, dun 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 ring of the bells, and it's just, like, go a different direction already. Do something a little bit askance. Do something a little off-kilter. Do something. Uh, another thing I learned is that this is a very self-contained movie, but not as much as the original Black Christmas, but I think they could have actually expanded beyond the house. You know, with a few scenes that I think could have uh, helped in making this campus seem desolate because this, what is supposed to have happened is that people can't make it home for the holidays. And so what you could have had is shots of this barren campus and then it could have um, really ratcheted up the tension of the fact that these are the only women on, on let's say, uh, a campus that could, would ordinarily have uh, 50,000 on it, like a University of Toronto or uh, Ohio State or any of these big schools. You could do like a panning shot. You could show, geez, look how empty, look how vacant, look how desolate this is. That's something that can amplify the fear and uh, give it a sense of remoteness. Uh, give this movie uh, its own little world that could have been played with there. And uh, Bob Clark, I guess, ingeniously introduced us to the killer right off the bat because it has a what-the-fuck element to it when you have this uh, kind of POV and you didn't know what to make of it at the time. It's since become cliche, but I think that would have served this film well as a as, and also not introducing this uh, kind of hackneyed uh, subplot with por porn revenge. Because you know, if, if you're going to go to the well and you're going to go to the exploitation well, you don't need, need to do it too often. We already got the incestuous backstory. We already got the camera leering at the naked body of one of the co-eds taking a shower, uh, which was, you know, I kind of liked because it's in the, uh, in the spirit of the golden era of horror where uh, the calling card was always a really hot chick and uh, naked. So I thought that was good because they went there. They're going to go there. They're going to make this movie that way. But by the same token, you can't have... Uh, a kind of a cornball uh, creature feature type element to it because you got to go, you got to make it hyper real. Uh, you got to just have it in totally infused with realism. Like you got to go maniac on this bitch or something. You can't have those other elements of hammer horror and the more uh, uh, corner elements of, of the uh, lightning storms and that kind of thing. You, you just have to do that and you have to you know, make your film cohesive and you can't have comedy that's out of place. It has to be uh, executed nicely and uh, deadpan always works better and has to work within the confines of, again, horror first and really working to tell the story. And uh, I don't, I, you know, again, this is not the worst remake uh, of all time and it's hard to really judge movies that are such um, I guess such singular efforts and it makes the distance and the chasm between the remake and the original that much worse when uh, the, the latter fails to hold up to the original. In this case I don't want to have that factor into it. I want to look at it as a film on its own merits. I'm going to give this two and a quarter out of five. Now, if you want to look at some of the best remakes of all time you're going to look at the likes of uh, Dawn of the Dead and obviously um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Fly. You look at the, uh, I think very well done, My Bloody Valentine, speaking of uh, films that are uh, linked to specific points in the calendar. These are efforts that really brought something new, brought something different, uh, and uh, really were a, a tribute, not a debit, uh, when it comes to the, you know, uh, the original, and uh, really uh, 
really uh, honored them. Uh, prom night, uh, abysmal effort where they tried to make the film really PG. And although the first prom night with Jamie Lee Curtis cutting a rug on the dance floor with Leslie Nielsen wasn't exactly uh, martyrs or, or you know a Serbian film by any means, but they they really went very very weak with that one. And Carrie, another one was just just god awful, just bad. But I guess to each their own, right? I mean. Uh, there's some people who find a lot more in this one than than I do, and fair enough. Uh, I was I was anticipating uh, really uh, slamming every single facet of this, but there's a few choice moments. There's uh, outweighed by multiple questionable ones, and I think uh, I'm fair with my assessment. Maybe to the high end, two and a half star. I think that's probably fair too. So uh, Merry Christmas, everyone, and uh, enjoy the holiday season. I'll be trying to uh, generate uh, more content and a quick plug for our horror book because we're talking horror right now and uh, some of these kills are going to be in the book, right? So it's Death by Umbrella, the 100 weirdest horror movie weapons in a very comprehensive tome. Every kind of uh, crazy kill you've ever seen. And if you haven't bought the, the book and you think there's some the glaring omission, omission, definitely let us know. Reallyawfulmovies at gmail.com. Uh, really awful movies is a frequent presence on Instagram, so be sure to check out uh, that one as we're uh, we're uh, engaging in a lot of content on there and meeting a lot of great people from around the world. So continue to listen, enjoy, and uh, stay safe. And I hope you and yours have a great uh, holiday and Christmas season and a belated Happy Hanukkah to everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.